Welcome to Rock and Roll Nuggets, tales from the gold mine, that gold mine of rock and roll, my friends, where we dig deep to explore the myths, the legends, the lore, and today the devil in rock and roll, the Satan connection, taking it somewhere it's never been taken before, but also connecting it for the very first time to the oddest, uh, the greatest, <laughs> and certainly the strangest and most bizarre of all rock and roll rumors, and maybe once and for all proving there is a little more fact than fiction. And if you don't know who I am, well, my name is Heggs, Luther Heggs. It is the premiere episode. Unless you were listening to me in Cleveland Radio in the 1990s, then you might also have heard me introduced on the air as, well, the connoisseur of cult, the prince of pop, the dean of the scene, even the second hardest working man in show business, for that is the way my friend, my good buddy, well, my co-host, and that would be Bob Becker, would introduce me on the Becker and Heggs show. We were so lucky. We were on this 50,000-watt talk station in town, 3WE, and we did politics, we did humor, and lots of rock and roll, and that's what I wanted to do full-time. So eventually, I went across town to this little oldie station that would become one of the top 10 oldie stations in the country, a little place called Magic. And it was magical because they allowed us to be real people on the air, and they allowed me, Luther Heggs, to tell all those great behind-the-scenes stories of rock and roll. You know, the ones that Dick Clark would never tell, well, I would tell them, <laughs> and I'd get in lots of trouble for it sometimes, but man, it was the best show. Now, we're going to talk about the interviews I did, conversations with people, people that I grew up idolizing in the 60s, these rock and roll gods and goddesses, like the night I'm here in Cleveland, and we'll talk about this in, in depth in a future show. This rock and roll goddess has just wowed the crowd here in Cleveland at the Moondog Coronation Ball, and she's coming off the stage. I'm getting ready to, to interview her, and then I notice she is covered with sweat from head to toe, and I don't know what came over me because you're not supposed to touch the rock and roll stars, you know. So I, I whip that hanky out of my pocket, and I start wiping the sweat off her brow, and, man, she just busts out laughing, and we had the greatest time, the greatest conversation. It was the late, great Mary Wilson of the greatest girl group of all time, and that is the Supremes. And we'll talk about the story she shared with me, like the one, like, she had a dance floor built in her house in Detroit, and all and all her buddies would come over from Motown. I mean, she was the good time girl at Motown, and not in a naughty way. She just had a great time. The, the Four Tops would come over, the Temptations. They'd be on this dance floor in her basement. They'd be doing the frug, <laughs> and they'd be just having a great old time. And once again, one great story after another. We'll talk about those in the future with Mary Wilson. And another gentleman I interviewed the same night at the same show. And man, he was the headliner. And I, I was scared because, well, they told me, they go, Luther, this cat doesn't do interviews anymore. He's a rock and roll legend. And there are only a few people that really are in this industry. But I knew it was my only chance, my only chance to talk to this rock god. So I, I go up to the dressing room door and I'm, I'm pretty scared. And I and there's a security guard there, and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, he goes, well, you know, if you're man enough, if you're man enough to just knock on the door and ask him yourself, he just might do an interview with you. So what have I got to lose? I, I knock on the door, and the door swings open, and, man, I am in shock because there he is. It, it's the father of rock and roll. It is Mr. Johnny B. Good himself. It was Chuck Berry. And, man, he was thrilled to talk to me. Now, not because it was me, Luther Heggs, but because he was in Cleveland. And Cleveland in the 1950s was the city that Chuck Berry and Elvis, all of these artists broke out big. And thanks to Alan Freed playing all that rock and roll on his show. You know, it was a big deal for them to do their first shows up here in a big northern city. And Cleveland was a big city at that time because of the music breaking out here. Because they were used to playing these little county fairs down south, these little juke joints. And like I said, his records broke out big, and his first big Northern appearance was at Gleason's. Chuck Berry was just thrilled because he said, I got 80 bucks a night to play here. <laughs> so anyway, we had a great talk, great conversation. We will share those stories in future shows. 
We will also talk about my years as a rock and roll road dog. Oh yeah, I worked in the concert lighting and sound industry for many years in the 70s and 80s, and I did shows with everybody from Eric Burden to, well, doing Louise Mandrell in Nashville. Oh, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't think that came out right. I did not do Louise Mandrell. She had her own family. I did too. I did the lighting for her. I was her lighting director. But being on the road with her for many, many years, I met everybody from, boy, Carl Perkins, talking about Sun Records with him one night, all the way to Glenn Campbell. So we'll share those stories when I was a rock and roll road dog. And like I said, a little bit of country music too. But I always end up back here in Cleveland. And for the last 15 years, I got a lot of stories to share about a place that, well, most people in rock and roll who are fans would give their left or right arm to work at this institution. Oh, yeah, because I had a job that very few people ever get to have a hand in, and that is an exhibit preparator at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, I started out as a docent for many years telling the history of rock and roll and the great fun stories to, uh, to all the VIPs, you know, everybody from Alice Cooper and their families to just the everyday visitors, which I love more than anything else because I'm a rock and roll fan, and, and I could just tell in their eyes, and when I would tell them a great story, they would just love it. But eventually, they put me in the exhibits at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and because I could work with my hands and I had tech experience, they trained me how to make mounts and forms for the clothes, the guitars. So many great stories, because I worked with everything from that very beautiful and lovely lime green Sergeant Pepper outfit of John Lennon's to an outfit from a lady you might know as uh, Stephanie Joanne Angelina Germanata, better known as Lady Gaga, now, I never did get to meet the Ga, but I did get to meet the Ga's meat dress. Oh, yeah, we had that beautiful, <laughs> beautiful bright red meat dress there. And uh, interesting stories about of all those behind-the-scenes things with the artifacts we put on display. More things we'll share in the future. But today, tonight, let us get to this topic of today, and that is the devil and rock and roll, the Satan connection. Now, when does the devil make his connection to this oh-so-joyous music, rock and roll? Now, it's not when most people think in the 1950s when rock and roll burst upon the scene worldwide. Oh yeah, they were calling it the devil's music. The music terrified parents, uh, uh, not only in this country, but around the world. And also, oh boy, it was the performers maybe more than anything else. Think about this. The mid-1950s, very conservative times. And then this cat, this hillbilly cat from Tupelo, Mississippi, hits the stage with that hair grease back. Oh yeah, and he's swiveling those hips. And what was his name? Why, it was Elvis Presley. <laughs> and that's another thing. The parents go, what the hell is an Elvis? An Elvis Presley? They were confounded by the music and the performers. And then it was one performer after another, good buddy of Elvis's. Of course, a guy who called himself the killer. Once again, it's the 50s. You know, people are listening to Perry Como, Andy Williams, Doris Day. And then this cat comes along and calls himself the killer, does most of his show jumping on top of his piano. And one night, the killer will actually burn that piano to the ground to a pile of ashes. And that's just not being done in the 50s or, well, all for today for that matter. Of course, the killer was Jerry Lee Lewis, but I'll tell you which performer scared the hell out of parents more than any others in the 50s. It was this cat from Macon, Georgia. In 1956, he hits the stage with this big, giant, bouffon hairdo. And man, is this cat wearing eye makeup? Oh, yes, he is. And this is the 50s. Men are just not wearing eye makeup, at least not in the daytime, and especially, oh, if you're black. He was a beautiful chocolate brown, and that is what scared those parents more than any anything else. You know, he used to call himself the Bronze Liberace. I am talking about the late, great Little Richard. So these, these performers are scaring parents all over the world. And then they start rioting. Yep, the rock and roll riots start, and they start right here in the rock and roll capital. That is Cleveland, Ohio, by the old King of the Moondoggers. Oh, that was the other name for Alan Freed. He puts on this little show, March 21st, 1952, at the Cleveland Arena. 
It is going to be called the Moondog Coronation Ball, and years later it will be designated as the very first rock and roll concert of all time and the first rock and roll riot. Yeah, he did something that no one else did in the 1950s. He sold out an R&B show, a rhythm and blues show, for 10,000 people at the Cleveland Arena. And the night of the show, they had another eight to 10,000 people wrapped around the building, and it was cold out that night in Cleveland, and they wanted to get inside, but they had, there were no tickets, nothing, nada, and they wanted to get inside where they could feel the heat of that rock and roll beat, where they could taste that music, so people are pushing against the doors. Glass will shatter, doors are ripped off their hinges, and before you know it, they're spewing out onto the dance floor, and we got fist fights breaking out now, and that's when the fire marshal comes out, and they put an end to that gig before it even had a chance to begin. The Moondog Coronation Ball is over, and then the next day, all across the nation, all across the world, on the AP Newswire service, the whole world knows that Cleveland was indeed the, the rock and roll capital because it said Mood Dog Coronation Ball in Cleveland, Ohio, turns into a rock and roll riot thanks to Alan Freed. And I thank you too, Alan Freed. And then Alan started taking the rock and roll riots on the road. Now, <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't his plan. He was just taking the music on the road. The kids had never seen or they'd never heard anything like rock and roll, and they wanted to see these performers in person so they just got well let's just say they got over exuberant they were excited they're dancing in the aisles and oh yeah once in a while they'll rip a few seats out of the floor there'll be a few fist fights and they start calling them riots and that's when that when they freak out all over the nation they start canceling rock and roll shows all over the nation in the 50s and that's when that is when the pastors and the preachers start saying wait a minute this music, these performers, they are corrupting the youth of our nation, and there is only one person, one being so evil and so corrupt that could be behind this, and this is the devil. So that's when they started calling this new rock and roll music the devil's music. Now, that is not when the devil makes his connection to rock and roll. Oh, no, because Satan, yeah, he knows how big rock and roll is going to be, how it's going to eventually envelop the world. So he wants to get in on the ground floor, the very bedrock of rock and roll, and where is that? Why, that is right down there in the United States in the Mississippi Delta region where all these blues players are playing because the blues will influence more rock and rollers in the 60s, 70s, and beyond than any other musical form. So the devil in the 1930s is going to go to the heart of it all, the bedrock. He goes down there, right down to Clarksdale, Mississippi, right down there. Oh, yeah, now many people thought he went out to Georgia first, but no, <laughs> the devil went down to Clarksdale, right down there in Mississippi because there was a man. There was a blues player who was willing to do something that no other blues player was willing to do to become the most influential, the greatest, the most revered, the most well-known of all the blues players. He was willing to, well, he was, he was willing to relinquish his soul, sell his soul to Satan. And who was this man? Why, it was Robert Johnson. Now the devil goes down there to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and he will, he will seal this deal with Robert Johnson and get his soul for all time. And if you don't believe me, go down to Clarksdale, Mississippi yourself, because right down there at the intersection, at the crossroads, if you will, at the intersection of Old Highway 49 and Bob's favorite Highway 61, yep, there is a monument on the spot to this very day where Robert Johnson sold his soul to Satan. And it was a success because over 80 years later, we are still talking about Robert Johnson. Musicians are still listening to that music. But does he start out this big? Does he start out this great? No, Robert does not. He's actually pretty mediocre in the early 1930s. But when does this legend start and the mystery and the stories that he sells his soul to Satan? Well, Robert Johnson will disappear from the circuit. Nobody sees him in the clubs or the little juke joints for like six months. Now he's going to return. And when Robert Johnson returns, all of a sudden he is this phenomenal blues player. And he's writing these unbelievable songs. And this is when people go, oh, wait a minute, how did this happen? Now, if you don't know, 
how important Robert Johnson is to the history of rock and roll and all the rock and rollers he influenced. And you don't want to take my word for it, Luther Heggs. What about a man who's in a band that many say is the greatest rock and roll band in the history of rock, the Rolling Stones? And of course, this man I'm talking about, I, I think he made a deal with the devil himself because I'm still surprised that he's still walking the face of the earth, but I'm also glad that he is. Of course, I'm talking about Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. When he first hears a recording by Robert Johnson as a young man, he is, he is just, oh, he can't believe it. He's mesmerized. He's never heard anything like this. It touches something on his inner soul when he hears this mournful, soulful wail of Robert Johnson on these recordings of only, by the way, 29 exist. And then he tells Brian, he tells Mick, and the Rolling Stones will eventually record one of his songs, but they don't do more than one because they never thought they could do justice to this blues master. They'll record Love in Vain on their Let It Bleed album. Now, if uh, Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones aren't enough of a testimony to you as to how important Robert Johnson, this great blues player, is to rock and roll, what about a gentleman who has been inducted into that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame more than any other? Three times, as a matter of fact, as a solo artist. As a member of a band you might have heard of, the Yardbirds, you know where I'm going with this, right? He was also in Cream. I'm talking about Eric Clapton. He won't even talk to another guitar player, he once said, until I was like 25 years old, unless we were talking about the blues master, Robert Johnson. Now, Cream will also record one of Robert's songs, and this is very important to our story, so remember this, a little thing called Crossroad Blues. Cream will just call it Crossroads, and then it will become their signature tune for the band Cream and a signature tune for Eric Clapton, for nobody, nobody plays guitar quite like Eric Clapton does on Crossroads. Now, their importance, and of course Robert Johnson's significance in rock and roll cannot be overstated. But once again, Robert Johnson does not start out this way. So how does the legend begin? Robert Johnson will disappear in the 1930s for about six months. People no longer hear him or see him at the clubs, but he returns. And Robert will return with a vengeance. And people are amazed because now all of a sudden when he comes back from this, let's say, sabbatical, <laughs> he is this phenomenal blues player. And he's writing songs, these, these, these masterpieces like Love in Vain and Crossroad Blues. But then he starts doing something really mysterious many nights when he plays one of these little clubs. He'll turn his back to the audience as if he doesn't want them to see how he is creating this wonderful and oh-so-magical, mysterious sound of the blues on his guitar. Now... This is when people start to talk because, you know, just say you saw someone who had all these riches bestowed upon you out of nowhere, or in the case of a Robert Johnson, all of a sudden he exhibits, he exhibits this unbelievable prowess on the guitar and he's writing these songs like out of nowhere. Yeah, oh, you know, and it's not that strange down south. No, it is not that strange down south uh, in the 1930s, especially. The closer you get to New Orleans, if, this, if a person like Robert Johnson comes out like this, that people start to talk, especially, like I said, when he turns his back to them as if he's hiding what he's doing, that they say, wait a minute, how did he become so good, so fast, seemingly overnight? He must have made a pact. He must have made a deal. He must have sold his soul to the devil to become that good almost overnight. Now, if you haven't asked yourself this question so far in my story, you need to now, and it is... How do you exactly go about selling your soul to the devil? There is a certain protocol to be followed, and this is what you must do if you want to make a deal with the devil like Robert Johnson did. Now, say you want to be a great blues player, there are a few things you need to do. The first thing, though, is now, remember that song of Robert's, a little thing called Crossroad Blues? You have to find yourself a crossroads. Oh, yeah, of course it has the religious significance of being a cross, and then find yourself one that has a cemetery. 
Oh, yeah, many crossroads will have a graveyard there, and many churches will also bury their unwanted sinners at a crossroads. They'll at least give them the benefit of a cross. They don't want to desecrate that very sacred and hallowed ground at their church and bury them there. They will bury these sinners at a crossroads. Then you have to take a couple of things with you when you go to the crossroads. And the one thing you don't even have to think twice about it, it is the very center and core of who you are. Why, it is your soul. Now, <laughs> don't worry. I mean, the, the devil's not going to latch on to your soul upon this first meeting. First of all, you have to seal this deal with the devil. And then you have to see if the old Beelzebub is going to hold up his end of the bargain. Now, the other thing you have to bring with you for this meeting with the devil is if you want to be a great blues player and a songwriter, you bring your guitar. So Robert brings his guitar the night he's going to meet the devil. Now, when do you go? When do you go to the crossroads? Why, well, you go right there, of course, right around the witching hour, right around midnight, and you will wait. But you won't wait long, for this denizen from hell isn't going to pass up this opportunity to latch onto your soul for all time. Now, when this creature, when this being does emerge from the shadows between the gravestones and he reaches out towards you, you dare not address him, for you know who it is. Oh, no, it, it is Beelzebub. It is the devil. It is Satan. And he wants something. He wants that guitar. So you will hand the guitar to the devil. Now, he's going to tune it. And then he's going to hand it back to you when he's done tuning your guitar. And this is the most important part of this transaction, if it takes place, because this is your, well, it's your last chance. It is your last chance to back away and save your soul for yourself and not hand it over to Satan for all eternity. But that is not what Robert Johnson does. It is not. He clutches that guitar to his chest. He wants to be the greatest blues player the world has ever seen, has ever heard, and he will become that. Like I said, 80 years later, we are still talking about Robert Johnson. We are still listening to his music. And, of course, we are trying to duplicate and emulate that soulful and mysterious sound of the blues that he created. So he does become this legend he wanted to become. But how long does it last for Robert Johnson? The, the adulation, the fame, as he walks the face of the earth in that mortal coil in the 1930s? Well, not very long. Seems the devil is an impatient sort, and Robert Johnson will die. Oh, he's going to die in the late 1930s because he did something that people said he shouldn't have done. He should have followed the golden rule of being one of the bad boys of the blues. He didn't have to die that young. Now, I call him one of the bad boys of the blues because, well, he was. And just like the rock and rollers he's going to influence many decades later, oh, yeah, he, he loved a drink, too. Yeah, they, they, they copied his musical style, but they copied his lifestyle, too. They were all boozers, and he loved to booze it up, and they were womanizers. Oh, man, they loved the women, and the women loved the bad boys of the blues and rock and roll. Now, when you lead a lifestyle like this, what is that golden rule? that will keep you alive for a long time. Well, the golden rule is when you're when you're playing one of these little juke joints, a little bar, or a house party. Oh, many times they'd just find an old house in the outskirts of town. They'd set up a chair in the middle of the living room. The blues guy would sit down, get ready to play, and right behind him would be a little homemade bar at this little house party. Now, the golden rule is because you made so many enemies of these boyfriends and husbands and lovers, you, you don't know who's out to get you, so you never take a drink from a container if you have no idea where it came from especially if the seal has been broken on that container of your favorite alcoholic beverage. And one night in the late 1930s, Robert Johnson does not heed that warning. He's doing one of these little parties, and he takes a big drink out of a container that had a broken seal. And then shortly thereafter, Robert Johnson will realize, oh, my God, I've been poisoned. But this is the 1930s. 
there are no EMS units, no. Especially if you are black, you've got to find a hospital. You have got to find a doctor that takes care of your own kind, and this is not available to Robert, and he will die, but it is going to be a slow and agonizingly painful death. Robert Johnson, founding father of the blues, probably the most influential and most revered of all blues players in the history of the blues and rock and roll, will die 1938 due to poisoning at the age of 27. Yes, 27. Does that ring a bell? Same age as all those rock stars who started dying at the end of the 60s. Yeah, and that 27 Club. Everybody thinks that it started in the 60s when those rockers started dying at that magical and oh-so-young age. No, it started with the man who sold his soul to Satan, with the man who would influence more rockers than anybody else in 1938. It started with Robert Johnson, who died at the age of 27. Now... You have to tune in to part two, the finale, the devil in rock and roll, the Satan connection, and then I will tell you the tale of all those rock stars, all those ones who died, oddly enough, in that very short time span of just two years, at the end of the 60s, and how it connects with Robert Johnson and Satan, the devil, and then we will tie it together for the first time with that great rock and roll rumor, the greatest rock and roll rumor of all time, certainly the most bizarre, the strangest, oh yeah, it's an odd one, we'll connect it all together. Once again in the finale, the devil in rock and roll, the Satan connection, and I will be your host. The name is Heggs, Luther Heggs, and my show, my podcast is Rock and Roll Nuggets, Tales from the Gold Mine, where we dig deep to explore the myths and the legends and the lore of rock and roll.